Um, we are in part 26, as you'll notice on the handout that was given you. Part 26 in this Revelation series, we're winding down. There's actually only 10 parts left and we're done completely with the book, uh, doing it verse by verse. So uh, those of you that have been with us, the majority of this study or all the study, uh, congratulations. This was a tough one, but boy, has it been a huge, huge blessing to me. Um, now I want to begin with today's message. Here comes the King with three stories that I'm going to read to you. Um, I'm afraid that we may not walk into this message with a proper heart, certainly not the proper mindset. So I am about to adjust your mindset. If you begin to own the stories that I share with you now, we begin with an ancient story. Anybody ever heard? And I, now that we've have all the Bibles, I can have you raise your hands. Anybody ever read Fox's book of martyrs or anything from them? Okay. A decent amount of you. It is one of the classics in Christian literature that accounts for many different martyrs throughout the centuries. And the second major persecution, the second entry into his book says this. Second persecution under Domitian, the Roman emperor, A.D. 81. The emperor Domitian, and this is when John was writing, by the way, the book of Revelation, same exact time frame. The emperor Domitian, who was naturally inclined to cruelty, first slew his brother and then raised the second persecution against the Christians. The first was under Nero. In his rage, he put to death some of the Roman senators, some through malice and others to confiscate their estates. He then commanded that all the lineage of David be put to death. Among the numerous martyrs that suffered during this persecution was Simeon, bishop of Jerusalem, who was crucified. And St. John, it's our guy, who was boiled in oil and afterward banished to Patmos. Flavia, the daughter of a Roman senator, was likewise banished to Pontus, and a law was made that, quote, no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion, end quote. A variety of fabricated tales were, during this reign, composed in order to injure the Christians. Such was the infatuation of the pagans that if famine, pestilence, or earthquakes afflicted any of the Roman provinces, it was laid upon the Christians. These persecutions among the Christians increased the number of informers, and many, for the sake of gain, swore away the lives of the innocent. Another hardship was that when any Christians were brought before the magistrates, a test oath was proposed when if they refused to take it, death was pronounced against them. If they confessed themselves Christians, the sentence was the same. The following were the most remarkable among the numerous martyrs who suffered during this persecution. Dionysius, Bishop of Athens, Nicodemus, Protasius, and Gervasius. Timothy, who was a celebrated disciple of St. Paul and the Bishop of Ephesus, where he zealously governed the church until A.D. 97. At this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast called Katagogion, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their ridiculous idolatry, which so exasperated the people, they fell upon him with their clubs. And they beat him in such a dreadful manner that he expired of the bruises two days later. This is John's mindset. This is what he was living. These are his friends. These are the people that he passionately poured out his life for. And they were being slain 
by the thousands. Let's advance forward to this year. Through a company called Voice of the Martyrs, if you want to learn anything more about them, they're at persecution.com. They said this, Bangladesh, pastor tortured by police. On June 7, 2009, police raided an evangelism meeting, arrested and tortured a pastor and two others in Boalia, Bangladesh. Pastor Rahman of Boalia Spiritual Church was leading the meeting when suddenly the police came in, took him to the police station. That night, the police blindfolded them with cloths for a few hours and beat them up. During the beatings, police asked who was supporting them financially and how long they had been evangelizing and how many people they had converted. At some point during the torture, police burned one of the believer's hands and lips with a cigarette. Ancient, present persecution. Let's step out of a religious sense and share something that perhaps you've been following in the news. June 10th, 1991, J.C. Lee Dugard, 11 years old, walking to the bus stop for school in South Lake Tahoe while being watched through a window from a distance by her stepfather. When a car pulled up, grabbed her screaming and drove off. She's been missing ever since until last Wednesday. When she was found, now 29 years old, she was abducted by a man and his wife, taken to Antioch, where she was isolated and kept in the backyard for 18 years in a tent in a shed. She was raped and ended up bearing two of her abductor's children along the way, starting with her first child born at age 14. Her children have never gone to school. They've never gone to a doctor. The children are now 11 and 15. The process of finding her began when the abductor was handing out religious pamphlets at Berkeley's campus with his two girls. Whether it's Christian persecution or individual evil, Jesus Christ will not stand for it. Period. We wonder in our minds, God, when are you going to do something about it? When are you going to stand up? When are you going to show that you care? When are you going to exercise all that might and authority? We're about to see what happens when he does. Today, would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 16? Revelation 16, 1. What I need you to understand and to be encouraged by is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. And it is simply this. When King Jesus stands, all his subjects must bow. When King Jesus stands, all his subjects must bow. We are about to read of the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out by seven angels. We had just come off a week where we were reminded of the grace, the compassion, the mercy of God. And now it's wrath time. We tend to read these stories with a cup of coffee sitting in our chairs at home, and we think to ourselves, my, isn't God mean? I look at my neighbors, and I could not imagine wrath being poured out on my neighbors. All they're doing is cutting their lawn. Then we think about our personal difficulties, and we talk about our struggles with our children and our day-to-day -day activity, and we don't know how to reconcile this passage. 
That's why I shared the stories with you. Because God isn't bringing wrath because your neighbors are doing their lawn. He's not bringing wrath because he has nothing else to do. He's not bringing his wrath because he wants to merely display power. He's bringing his wrath because his kids are getting killed. And enough is enough. If you have not found Revelation 16, it's page 875 and the Bible's handed to you. But let's go ahead and read through this. As we read these trumpet, uh, these bowls, you're going to realize they're very, very similar to the trumpets we just studied. As a matter of fact, six out of the seven are very similar in nature. The trumpets were partial. They were a warning. The bowls are full and complete devastation. When God finished the last portion that we studied last week, his smoke filled the temple and no one was allowed in, meaning no more intercession. We're done with that. Now is go time. And this is what John saw. Revelation chapter 16. We're just going to read through verse 16 today. That's all the time that we'll have to study. Then I heard a loud voice, John said, from the temple, saying to the seven angels, go pour out those seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One. Because you have so judged, for they have shed the bloods of your sa- blood of your saints and prophets, you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and to glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heavens because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs that came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what we are about to witness and see and study is astonishing in nature. Yet you are just and true. You are fair. You are right. You are exact in your measurements. Thank you, Lord, for extending to us grace, compassion, and mercy. That you would make a way possible of salvation. And Father, you sent your one and only Son to die on the cross that we might not partake in any of this wrath. That we might be saved. God, if there are any among us today 
that do not know you as Lord and Savior, I ask that you would whisper to their heart, reveal who you are, in Jesus' name, amen. So does it get any more rough than this? I mean, this is pretty hardcore, yeah? I mean, we're now looking, and like I said last time, be very careful of your assumptions about God's nature when you see Him in a fight. Because right now, you're going to assume a lot of things. Oh, he's vicious and he's cruel. Hold on. No, 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 no. This is the execution of judgment that has been warned, warned, warned again. There is over and over these reminders and a call to repentance constantly. The gospel has been shared all over the world. There is a constant reminder that their God loves them and is chasing after them and that it is His will that none shall perish but all come to eternal life. Yet many reject the message. Many re- result in selfishness and they end up putting themselves on the throne. In the rejection of the only Savior that ever showed up, there is nothing left but wrath. And this is what we see. So let's study it and see what we can take away. Revelation 16:1. John said, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Whose voice is that? God. How do we know it's God? Because last time when the smoke filled the temple, it said no one's allowed in until it's over. So nobody can get in. So clearly if there's any voice coming out, it has to be the only one who's in there which is God. God then says to the seven angels, if you remember from last week, seven angels stepped forward and were given golden bowls, shallow bowls, that priests would use for blood, for wine offerings, for incense. They're given seven bowls. Each one was given one bowl, and then they pour them out instantaneously upon the earth, but their bowls were not filled with incense or wine. Their bowls were filled with the wrath of God. So now these seven angels step forward. God says, go, and they pour them out on the earth. The first angel went, John said, and he poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. We're familiar with these sores because they're mentioned many times in Scripture. Why? Well, let's go back. The majority of the trumpets and the bowls and this revelation story is really tied to the story of Egypt. I've been telling you this story over and over every week about how Moses came in because God told him to walk up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. We know that story. And then 10 plagues rained down on Egypt to make them let the people go. Well, those plagues are repeated throughout here. There was a plague of boils that hit Pharaoh and his team. These were festering open boils. The same boils actually fell upon Job. Everybody remember Job's story? Well, he would talk about he would scrape at his boils with pots, pieces of pots, and the dogs would come and lick his sores. Do you remember that? We also hear about him in the New Testament when Jesus told a parable of a rich man and a poor beggar named Lazarus who had sores. So we've heard about these a lot. In Egypt, there was a scenario of uh, when they violated God's command, he rebuked them with sores. And according to Greek, it says sores that came upon their seat. Everybody know what you're sitting on? 
We call those hemorrhoids. Now, here's the deal. We've seen boils before. We've seen these abscesses before. Now they begin to break out on the skin all over the bodies of those that follow the beast and worship his image. Now, you've got to understand, it's very specific to them. It is not for the children of God. This is wrath. Your wrath was taken away by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not for you. That's why it's a big deal what Jesus did, right? This wrath does not come upon the family of God. You say, well, well, how is he supposed to separate that? I mean, what if all of a sudden I'm hanging out and there's a beast worshiper and they get boils, I touch them. Now I got boils. How is he supposed to separate the two? Hold on. God's really good at that kind of stuff. All right. Let me give you an example. Keep your finger there. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter five. Now we're going back to the second book in the Bible. So you're going to go all the way to the left. By the way, it's page 45 and the Bible's handed to you. I want to show you something about how good God is at exacting who gets hit and who does not. This is going to reference the plague of the flies, but I think you'll understand the point. He emphasizes this in many of the different plagues, including the one of darkness that we're about to read. Exodus chapter 8, verse 22, excuse me, not 5, messed that up. Everyone's like, what? Exodus 8, 22, page 45. But on that day, God said, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. Goshen is where all the Jews were housed, like a containment camp. There was Egypt and Goshen. I will deal differently, he said, with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarm of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. Now, go back to Revelation. God knows how to specify, and you're going to realize what the people that follow the beast realize. God is going after them. Why would he go after them? Why not just go after the big dogs? The beast, the false prophet, Satan. Oh, he will. But do you understand when you put your allegiance into something, when you put your loyalty into something, you cannot serve two masters. So either you're going to be serving the enemy or you're going to be serving God. That is the choice. I ask you now, what kingdoms are you building in your life? In what way are you serving you and not God? That's still another throne. We'll talk about that more as we go. But specifically, the sores begin to break out all over their bodies and they would seek help. But look what happens next. It says, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. All right, a couple questions. Number one, sea like in all oceans? Is that what happened? Or is it the localized sea in the area? Are we talking about maybe a red sea? Are we talking about the Mediterranean Ocean? What are we talking about? Because a lot of our seas are pretty well connected or certainly our oceans are, right? It all turns to what? To blood, it doesn't say like blood, does it? It seems to say blood. Not just any kind of blood, but blood of a dead man. What's the difference? Coagulated, thick, sticky, smelly. That's what it means. It's trying to conjure a pretty nasty image. So then it turns into blood. Now, what are you normally going to wash your sores with? Not anymore. Right? 
Now your water source has been adjusted. It's been adjusted to such a degree that what? It's just like the Egyptian plague. The Egyptian plague, when it hit, and remember when Moses took the staff that was in his hand and he touched the Nile River, it turned to blood. But not just the Nile. According to that story, it was over all the rivers, streams, canals, ponds, reservoirs, wooden buckets, and stone jars. All their water source. The only way they survived was to dig in the banks of the Nile to try to hit the water table outside of the Nile. And God allowed that to be fresh. They had to go dig for their water. So now, if he hits the sea... You go, oh, that's a lot of water, but what about their drinking water? They're probably not going to drink the sea. Look at the next bowl that's poured out. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now everything is blood. Now we have a water supply problem. A couple other issues. Number one, do you all remember the witnesses, the two witnesses that came down? And these guys are preaching the first three and a half years. Do you remember that they had the power to do miracles? Do you remember that? The two miracles that happened to be mentioned were they were able to shut up the sky so that it would not rain the whole time they were preaching. Where do we get a lot of our water source from? Rain. Not anymore. No rain. Now it's all in the reservoirs. Those all got hit. Secondly, did you realize that the witnesses have the power to turn water into blood? That was the other miracle that was mentioned about them. So this is not the first time that water has been affected by turning into blood. Why all this blood? What's the point? I mean, you're hitting seas with blood. You're putting rivers to blood. Why so much blood? Well, let me give you a little lesson about why I think it's blood. I think it says it pretty clearly in here, but let's go on a little journey. Take in Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. See if we can't trace through this together. Revelation 5, 8, page 870. It says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, meaning in worship. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the what? Prayers of the saints. Now go to Revelation 6, 9. So the bowls are tied to the prayers of the saints. Did you see that? Now, Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our what? Blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had was completed. Go to Revelation 8, 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the what? Prayers of all the saints. Went up before God from the angel's hand and the angel took the censer, filled it with fire. Whoa, I skipped ahead. Sorry about that. Let's try that again. 
Let's try it again. Verse 3, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Why so much blood? Because that's what they spilled. Blood for blood. Is that what you want to do? You want to kill my children? You want to spill their blood? Then that's what you'll drink. Because you seem to think this is okay. You seem to think that you're in control of this world, he would say to the beast. That you could just wander around and kill whoever you want. That don't you understand that my saints are precious to me? You don't harm my kids. You don't harm my people. But you think that you're in control, that you have power over life and death. I am God, he says. And you will drink what you have spilled. Is it possible that this is the answer to the saints, the martyred saints under the altar saying, God, when are you going to avenge us? And God goes, right about now. Hmm. It says this. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say... Who's that guy? I don't know. You are just in these judgments, he said. What does that mean? It means it's fair. How's it fair? Well, they're destroying the family of God. So they're going to be destroyed. That's how it's fair. You who are and who were. What do we know? What are we used to hearing that follows next? And who was to come? Uh, It always talks about that who was and is and is to come. Well, now that he's here, you can cut off the last part. So he was and is. The Holy One, that's the Anointed One, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond. Why is the altar talking? That's weird. Right? Right? Do you have to pay extra for talking altars? I don't know. The altar responded and said, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Who's talking? It's either the personified altar, which is kind of like, Hey, if the altar would say something, he'd say this, right? That could possibly be it. Or it could be the angel in charge of the altar who's speaking on behalf of the altar. Or it could be who we read that is underneath the altar, which are the martyrs. And they shout out, yeah, you're right in what you're doing. That's really, I think, what's going on. I think that this whole chorus of those that have been slain said, it's absolutely fair. We're down here because of them. So is it fair? Indeed it is. It says this. Um, By the way, just side note, God's really into ironic penalties. What do I mean? Well, Warren Wiersbe pointed this out. He said it's blood for blood, but isn't it the same thing that when the when Pharaoh drowned the Hebrew boys in the Nile, that his army got drowned? Isn't that ironic? Isn't it ironic that when in Esther's story, Haman built a bunch of gallows to try to hang Mordecai, but he himself ended up getting hung on the same gallows? Okay, so over and over, there's these ironic penalties of saying, what are you going to do to somebody? What are you going to do to the innocent? Because I think we're going to turn the tables on you. I think you're going to go through what you thought they were going to go through. 
So as much as you have harmed my children, you have no idea the torment that is awaiting you. You think this is bad. Well, until you die. Then I'm coming after you with full force. It says this. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. This is the first time he says he poured it on. Every other time he poured it into. He poured it out on the sun. And the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. Wow, that's pretty significant climate change, don't you think? That's, that's global warming, I think. That's pretty significant global warming, as a matter of fact. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. Pause. They know who it's coming from. This is not a whole, gosh, that's weird. I wonder why everything's heated up so great that we're all burning. Oh, look, only some of us are burning. Others are not. What kind of SPF do you use? Right? It's not that. It is very obvious that this is a judgment of God. It's very clear. It's searing and burning those that are following the enemy. They know it's him. So in other words, God is bringing down a consequence of their actions upon them. They now have two choices. What direction are they going to go? The Bible tells us very clearly, it says, but they refuse to repent and glorify him. Let's make it personal. Every time God corrects you on something where you are out of line, especially if you are a child of God, the Bible says that he disciplines those that he loves. So if you are a child of God, expect the discipline of God. When he sweeps in with a correction and discipline, you have two choices to respond to that devastation. Number one, you can repent and get back into intimacy with God. That's what he's hoping for. Second one, you can grow bitter and hard. That's it. Those are your two choices. They went bitter and hard. So now that God has stepped in in your life, right? And throughout, perhaps God has used a lot of this recession time. To really sweep in and re-rack people. Now, I'm not saying that's what it's specifically for. It could just be a downturn in the economy. It could just be accidental upon your life. So don't automatically read something into it, but you better consider this. Is it possible that you've been a poor steward of everything that you've had and you know it? God swept in, knocked you out of everything, devastated you completely economically and said, stop. Re-rack, listen to me. Now you can either go, I can't believe everyone's against me, even God's against me, now he's shutting everything down, God hates me. Is that the direction you're going to go? Or are you going to go the direction of, God, what can I learn from this? What are you trying to say? Because I will step up and I will work hard and I will do what I can for my family. What are you going to do? Which direction are you going to go? Let's go this way. Let's say you've been treating your wife like garbage for decades, finally she steps up and says, enough, we are done here, you're devastated. Well now, you can either say, Lord, what must I learn about how I have treated my wife? Or you can go back and say, God, why are you against me? You're taking everything away. See, every time I trust you, you're horrible to me. Is that what you're going to do? You're going to get hard? When God brings in discipline and correction, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to be moldable? Are we going to be shaping in the hands of God? Or are we just going to get more angry? God, oh, you're always against me. Always against me. No, he's not. If you're an enemy, yeah, there's times when he's against you. But even the enemies of God, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for the ungodly and extended his mercy and grace. 
none of us would be standing here if God didn't reach out to his enemies. Go on to the passage. It says this. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. The throne of the beast. That's a weird way to say it. Not really. Throne is referenced 42 times in the book of Revelation. What do you think this book is about? It's about thrones. Who's on the throne of your life? Are you allowing the beast to be on the throne of your life or God on the throne of your life? Or are you still playing the game that you're on the throne of your life? Right? Because that isn't really happening, by the way. But this is about who's in control, who's in charge, who's setting your priorities. Who's setting what you think is valuable? What are you spending your time on? What are you spending your resources on? If I, as an outsider, looked at you and began to assess your life, what are you putting all your passion towards? What are you thinking about all the time? What are you constantly obsessed with? Because that you are worshiping and you will become what you worship. Just know that. Lock that in your mind. You will become what you worship. Why is God pouring out wrath upon those that follow the beast? Because they have become the beast in their hearts. That's always how it goes. So what are you investing all of your heart into? What captures your thoughts and imaginations on a consistent basis? In my life, I'm sitting there examining it out and I'm going, well, wait a second. I really think about God like all the time. But I also think about some garbage. And I'm sitting there trying to go, oh, shoot. Am I spe- what, what's going on with my mind? Where, where am I spinning? What is spending most of my time on? What are the things that interest me? And I had to go through this huge examination just to teach this message. I'm not exempt from that. This is for me. What's going on in my heart? What kingdoms am I setting up? Who's sitting on what thrones? Right? fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. You see, that happened in Egypt in Exodus chapter 10. And it said the darkness could be felt. Whoa, that's a weird picture. Have you ever been in a room that's hot and it feels stifling and you feel like you can't breathe very well? That's what we're talking about. His whole kingdom lights go out. Boom. And you can feel it like a tangible darkness covering your face. Talk about feeling claustrophobic. The whole time you've got no fresh water and you have sores all over your body. Now you can't even find help. You can't even find your way around your own kingdom. All this raining down upon the enemies of God. Men nod their tongues in agony. That means chew, bite. Why do you chew on your tongue? Because you have nothing else that you could possibly do to stop the pain. So you control the pain that you can. And you, it's just a frustration and an agony. And they cursed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. There's no repentance. They're way beyond that. Now it's just anger all the time. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. What is the great river Euphrates? It's mentioned as the great river five times in scripture. What is it? Well, it's a river that comes down. We learned about it in the Garden of Eden. It was one of the rivers that went by the Garden of Eden. It comes down and winds 1,800 miles from Mount Ararat. Have you ever heard of that before? What landed on Mount Ararat? 
Noah's Ark, that's right. So it goes down from Mount Ararat, 18 miles down into the Persian Gulf. It is the eastern boundary. Imagine on a map, you got Israel, the Holy Land. On the left side or the western side, you have a sea. They're on a coastal region. On the right side, it heads into Asia. But what? It's boundaried by the Euphrates River. The eastern boundary of the Holy Land is the Euphrates River, at least how God laid it out to Abraham. Now, every time they were attacked, their enemies always seemed to come from the east, the place where the sun rises. So now we all of a sudden are going to have enemies coming from the east, but this time it's not just against the Jews. This time, the beast has taken over the temple. He's taken over the area. Now, Rome, in John's mind, was nervous about the east too. Why? The Parthians were on the east. They were the biggest, baddest cavalry around. They would come riding in on their horses and be able to devastate that area of Rome. So Rome's scared to death of what's coming east. So even in the future, what's going to come sweeping in from Asia? But the kings of the east. The Euphrates River is normally a boundary, but even in this day, there has been so many dams built and irrigations that now even the great river Euphrates isn't great anymore. It's now sometimes dries down to a trickle. Will there be a time in the future when it's full flooded? I don't know, but it will be completely dried so that a massive army can sweep in from Asia. Who are they? We have no idea. One commentator said, after a study of 100 commentaries, I've come up with 50 options. I'm not going to read them all for you, okay? So, who are they? Well, we got a couple basic options. When I was growing up, everything was Russia, just to let you know. By the way, all these things are all nuclear war. That's what I was told, too. Right? It's the painful sores and how it affects the water and it's going to be World War III and everyone's going to fire nuclear bombs. That's what I was told growing up my whole life. So it's always Russia and it was always nuclear bombs. Well, now that's changed. So now everybody, it's always China, just to let you know. They took over for Russia being the bad guys, apparently. So now China, because they have this large standing army and they're growing in the economy, now they're the ones that are going to attack. Now, what's interesting is, Who's in charge of the Holy Land at this point? The beast. So who are the armies coming to attack? The beast. As a matter of fact, this is a bad thing for him, but quite frankly, we don't care. Why? Because, hey, bring it on. Go have them sweep in and attack the, the Antichrist empire. What do I care? You can bring it in. God's bringing in a judgment. Now, what is the another possible option? Well, here's another possible option. It doesn't actually say the word east. It says the kings that come from the sun rising, which every other time it's the east because the sun rises in the east. But it's very possible it, the Euphrates is going to dry up because that's the way that Jesus Christ and the armies of God are going to come sweeping in. It's very possible that the armies are God's armies to devastate and to fight at Armageddon. We go back to our text. Then I saw three evil spirits that look like what? Frogs. Why did he write that they look like frogs? Because they look like frogs. All right, moving on. Then I saw three evil spirits. This is what's weird. Now, they look like frogs. You start, oh, the frogs are unclean, and there was a plague of frogs in Egypt. And you start putting all the pieces together. All right. But where do they come from? Look at the next text. It says that they came out of the mouth of what? They came out of the mouth of the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. 
Satan. And they came out of the mouth of the beast. Who's the beast? The Antichrist. And they came out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's his right-hand man. Why are these froggies jumping out of their mouths? Right? It says they're evil spirits. That word is unclean pneuma is coming out. Unclean is the same word that was used every time Jesus cast out a demon. They were called unclean spirits. So first of all, it's demonic. Second of all, it's pneuma. So you say it came out of their mouth. What's another word for wind, breath, right? And these spirits coming out of their mouth. It's all the same word. Pneuma in Greek is the same word breath. So when you look at it and says, I saw three evil spirits that look like frogs coming out of their mouths. It is as if they're breathing it out. What are they breathing out? Demonic influence. What are they breathing out? Ways to sway the world. And what did they do? They are spirits, what they're breathing out, spirits of demons performing miraculous signs to sway the people as they go out to the kings of the whole world. Uh Uh-oh, now it's not local anymore. What is this, World War III? World War IV? How long is Jesus going to tarry? We're going to have another world war before then? I don't know. But everybody gets involved. And he goes out to round up, knowing that the kings of the east are going to come in, and he begins to rally the troops of the whole world to come and fight in the Middle East along with him, the Antichrist. To gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, Jesus says, I come like a thief. That means without notice. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him. That means paying attention so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Don't be embarrassed by not being ready. But what a weird place to put that message. Almost always we think of this Jesus coming like a thief. Oh, my gosh, he's going to come sudden. That's the rapture. It's all at the beginning right here. It has it at the end. Why? What do you mean it's coming? Coming as the king, like the king of the east or coming. What now he's going to come shockingly upon The enemy, the beast, or what does it mean? How weird for it to put it way back here. So this is where we begin to start maneuvering pieces in our minds. We go, wait a second. If Jesus is coming as a thief, is he coming for the first first time? We already know he came 2,000 years ago. So is he coming for the second time? And if he comes down in raptures, is this the third time? Because he's got to come down for the battle of Armageddon. So is it the second or the third time? Well, that's what we're wrestling with, right? And trying to sort it out. And as we close up studying this book, we're going to start throwing out timelines and start looking at things and putting all the pieces together. But what's his whole point? Pay attention. It shouldn't be catching you off guard. I'm talking to my people all the time, Jesus said. Listen, it doesn't have to be shocking. It can be shocking to a bunch of people that aren't paying attention. But trust me. If you see all these things going on, you know what's going on. You get it. Pay attention. Watch for me. And be ready when I return. It closes with this line. Then they, meaning all the kings of the world and the Antichrist empire, they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Where's that? We don't know. It really depends on how you want to read the word. You can either look at it in Hebrew and it's Armageddon, which means city of Megiddo, or it's Har- Harmageddon, 
which most accurate manuscripts have Armageddon, not Armageddon. And you go, who cares? R, R, tomato, tomato, who cares? Okay, because they mean different things in Hebrew. One means Mount of Megiddo, mountain of Megiddo. The other says city of Megiddo. Those are two different things. So you go, whatever. Okay, well, whatever, it matters because where's this location going to be? So what? It's at the mountain Megiddo. There is no such thing. It doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, the city is on a 70-foot mound. That's it. That's the city. So there is no mountain. It's on a plain, the Esdralon Plain, a huge flat place that goes and butts up against the bottom of Mount Carmel. So is it talking about Mount Carmel? Is that what it's talking about? Is it talking about the plain? The plain is very, very famous. They've had more battles in that huge plain in the Jews' history than almost any other place. As a matter of fact, anybody remember the Gideon story? Remember the guy who had the army and he was going to have to fight the Midianites and God kept whittling his army down to what? 300 men. And he had to go up against all the Midianites and they broke their jars and they shouted and God sent them into confusion and they won the war. That was right here on the Esdralon plain. So will the battle line up in this Esdralon plain? Perhaps. But what's it going to look like? How's the battle going to go? We don't find out. Until chapter 19. So we have, when we close today, a pause in the action. And we finish 16, read 17, 18, 19 shows Jesus show up at the fight. That's where the action picks back up. So let me give you a couple practical things as we move forward. First of all. I want to touch real briefly again on the idea of setting up a kingdom in your heart. Do you realize that there's areas where you don't want Jesus to go? Do you also understand that that's not okay? We set up little encampments. We don't want God to go there. We set up little kingdoms where we say, Jesus, you can't go any further. That's mine. That's where I struggle with. Lord, you've had all the others. You have 90% of me. And he says, but I want that one. Ah, that's a struggle. And then the second thing. You can look at all this stuff as academic and just say, oh, that's all about the beast. It doesn't involve me. So I can pretty much check this one off my mind. Yeah, God hates sin, but you know what? Of course he's going to go after the monsters. This guy and his wife who kidnapped this little girl. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, hey, Let the wrath come down, right? Oh, that's an obvious one. And yeah, people killing Christians, that's completely obvious. I mean, that's heinous sin. All right, bring it. You sure you and God have the same definition of what's heinous? Because the way that I read my Bible, when it talks about the abominations, the stuff that really irritates God, these are on the list. Lying, pride, and selfishness. Oh, look, that's our church. You understand what I'm saying? This is not just about God bringing down wrath, punishment, or correction upon just what we think is the overt stuff. Don't you get that we're playing games with fire? That we're sitting here running around thinking that, oh, whatever, so I'm cocky and arrogant. That's just me being me. Whoa. What? What did you just say? 
Because then when God smacks you, he goes, that's just me being me. Right? We got to be real careful. Oh, so what? Yeah, you know what? I just do business. and I kind of just talk about this. And okay, that wasn't totally legitimate what I was saying. But yeah, I got the sale. Pause. That's not okay. We need to re-rack what we think is heinous. Because God's looking at it drastically different. Any elements of our lives that are pushing him out of the rightful place in our lives are offensive to God Almighty. Stop looking at everybody else and saying that you're a good person. You're not. And neither am I. And that's why Jesus has to teach us. He's reworking us from the inside out. And remember, as he changes us, we have two options. Submit to his handling or grow bitter and angry. What are you going to do? Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that we got a chance to dive into your word, to see elements of who you are. That, Father, as you rage against sin of the grossest sort, we are aware that there is gross sin even within our lives. As much, Jesus, as you have cleansed us, from our sin as children of God, we still consistently rage against you. We make it all about us. We push you out. We compartmentalize you. For these things, Father, we repent. We don't want to be like that. We want to be soft in your heart. We want to be soft in your hands. Lord, mold us and shape us into a generation that is all that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray.